Good morning again. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19. Sermon text for this morning is Acts 19, 23 to 41. Uh, if you are, are new to us or visiting for the first time, uh, we preach week after week through passages of the Bible. So uh, each week we pretty much pick up, up uh, where we left off last week. So last week we ended with verse 22 in Acts 19, and this week we're going to pick up with verse 23 in Acts 19, and next week we'll pick up with Acts chapter 20, and so on and so forth. And we do that because we believe that uh, God speaks to us through His Word. And so we come to hear His voice. Uh, we know that we are, are broken people. And uh, we know that we need Jesus. And so we come to, to see Jesus in the Scriptures each week. And uh, as we come to Him, let's pray together again. Our Father, we, we do know that we are broken people and we know that we need you. We know uh, that we are sinful and uh, tempted. Uh, we know that we are often suffering and tried. And Father, we, we just know that in every aspect of life we need you. Uh, we need you. We need to hear from you. We need your Son. We need your grace. Uh, we need your spirit at work within us. So we come this morning, Father, as needy people, seeking you and seeking your grace. And we pray uh, that you would teach us from your word, that you would show us Jesus, that you would show us your grace, that you would fill us with your spirit, and that you would equip us to go and serve you and the world to your glory and honor. Father, we uh, pray that you would be with us now by your spirit to that end, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. There is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship." When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, 
Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. When he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. How do you see your role in society? Uh, whether you're out in the workforce or a student on campus for the first time, what is your role as a Christian in this place at this time? Are you uh, seeking to spend all your free time uh, winning people for Jesus? Are you out there waging the culture wars uh, against the evils of society? Are you just keeping your head down and hoping that uh, no one will notice you. Should the church influence society? Uh, the relationship between the church and uh, society is admittedly one of, I think, the most challenging things uh, that I've ever wrestled with. And, of course, the caricatures are numerous. Uh, there's the church that just kind of blends into society. Uh, there's the church that attempts to dominate society and control it. Uh, there's the church that avoids society altogether. All of those actually have some little piece of the picture, but none of them get it right. They're all caricatures. Uh, let me suggest maybe a, a more uh, modest proposal this morning, that uh, something that's really just the foundation uh, of the beginnings of thinking about how we relate to the world around us. Uh, so clearly not the whole picture. But what we see in Acts 19 is uh, three things. We see that the church is to be obedient, that is that Christians are to be obedient to civil authorities. Uh, we'll see that the church is to be influential, uh, influential in, in society at large, and that really in the end the church is to be the church. Again, obviously we're not going to say everything, but just look at these three sort of simple, uh, though maybe not easy, but simple, broad uh, principles. Um, let me remind you where we are though in the book of Acts. Uh, the book of Acts starts with kind of a bang, right? I mean, Jesus sends out his disciples. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And uh, then the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost in power. Uh, the church explodes. The gospel goes out. Uh, thousands are saved, even that very first day. Uh, the church encounters opposition, but seems unstoppable, right? It just keeps going. Paul himself, right, the great persecutor of the church, is converted and turns to Christ uh, earlier on in the book. The gospel begins to break down centuries-old barriers uh, from Jew to Samaritan, from Samaritan to God-fearing Gentiles, from God-fearing Gentiles to outright pagans. Paul launches into his missionary journeys. He goes throughout modern-day Turkey, eventually into Greece, starting and establishing and building up the church. There is this shift that takes place, though, at this point in the story in Acts. 
there's this really marked slowing down of the narrative. Uh, less and less will happen in each chapter as we go, you'll notice. We begin to focus on Paul's trials before civil rulers and his journey to Rome in chains. In fact, it's almost a third of the story from here on out, and it all is just focusing on Paul heading to Jerusalem to get arrested and then heading to Rome. No more church planting, uh, no more missionary journeys. Uh, in, in fact, Ephesus here is one of the last major cities that Luke tells us about. Uh, here and then again in chapter 20, he talks about Ephesus. One of the last vignettes of Paul's missionary work is, is a picture of conflict. Conflict, uh, we might say, between the church and the world. Of course, Jesus promised in the world that we would have trouble, and so it, it's no surprise. But it's in the midst of this conflict that we see the church in its relationship to uh, the society. And the first thing I want you to, to see is that the church is to be obedient. Uh, Luke has recorded for us a number of, of examples of conflict. Uh, it seems the early church was always at the center of some city-wide disturbance. Uh, this was true in Jerusalem. It was true all along Paul's missionary route. Uh, rare was the city, it seems, where Paul was not persecuted and run out of town. In fact, this was so true that Christians in general, and Paul in particular, began to get a reputation as troublemakers. Not just troublemakers, but they were seen as stirring up rebellion against Rome. The accusation back in chapter 17 uh, against Paul was this. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Or in Acts 24, verse 5, uh, we'll see again Paul's opponents say this. We have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots all, uh, among all the Jews throughout the world. And notice the accusation, right? Paul is one who stirs up riots and encourages people to reject Caesar for some other king, King Jesus. Well, they've got it part right. <laughs> Uh, now, these, uh, the twist on these accusations isn't anything new because you may remember Jesus' accusers back in the Gospel of Luke say this. They say, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Again, they got it part right. <laughs> the accusation is that the kingship of Jesus means rebellion against Caesar. Why does Luke include these stories? Why does he keep including these conflicts? Why does he keep including these stories of Paul coming before uh, Roman rulers and being tried? Do you remember where, Acts, where the book of Acts ends? Uh, in the end of Acts, Paul will be in prison, about to face trial before Caesar. So in prison, once again, about to face another trial. And many people think that Luke is writing to, to try to demonstrate that Paul was no enemy of Caesar and did not stir up trouble. And no, it, it, actually, it was Paul's opponents we've seen throughout the book of Acts that are always stirring up trouble. And Roman official after Roman official declared Paul's innocence. Luke is trying to show, some say, that the legal precedence for Paul's acquittal Look, this, this Roman ruler acquitted him, and this Roman ruler acquitted him, and this Roman ruler acquitted him. Therefore, Paul is not guilty of any crime. 
And so if, if that's the case, this story kind of furthers Luke's goal, right? A man named Demetrius gets upset at Paul's teaching. He thinks, among other things, that Paul's teaching blasphemes the goddess Artemis, whose temple and statue were actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And Demetrius basically starts a riot, drags two of Paul's companions into the assembly hall. They, the gathered mob is so confused, Luke says almost humorously, that most people didn't even know why they were there. It's just a mob, uh, which happens. And uh, a Jewish person uh, gets up to talk, probably to try to distance himself and his fellow Jews from Paul, sort of like saying, don't blame us for those crazy Christians, right? Whatever they might be saying. Uh, but the crowd shouts him down. And uh, he, they don't want to hear from anyone who doesn't bow to the great Artemis, neither Christian nor Jew. Finally, the town clerk, uh, the, the one who's kind of accountable to Rome in this case, uh, steps in and he says two things. Uh, one, in verse 37, he says that these men uh, are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Uh, what he's saying there actually is that they're not guilty of any crime. They haven't committed, committed any religious crime against the temple or against the goddess. And then in, in verse 40, second, he says, For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And see, here's the refrain in Acts. Paul's not guilty of any crime, and Paul's opponents are the ones who caused this riot. And so Luke's point is, Christians have committed no crime by being Christians. Now, actually, that was an open question for at least another century or more. Uh, the, the governor Pliny of Bithynia wrote a letter uh, about uh, 112 AD, and he asked the emperor Trajan if it was a crime to have the name Christian. Is it a crime simply to be called Christian, Trajan asked, or, or Pliny asked. And, uh, or does one have to actually do something in order to be punished, right? Can you punish them just because they're Christians, or do they have to actually do something that else against the law? That was Pliny's question. Well, Luke, earlier than that, is trying to show that Christians have not committed any crime just by being a Christian. And, you know, uh, Paul expands on that in Romans 13, which we read earlier. Uh, Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And see, here's the point. The kingship of Jesus does not make us rebellious against governing authorities. Actually, the opposite, it should make us submissive to them. Submit to governing authorities, Paul says. As you read through the New Testament, Paul calls citizens to submit to governors. He calls children to uh, submit to parents. We could le legitimately infer uh, employees should submit to their employers in their workplace. Uh, students should, should submit to their teachers, right? If you follow Jesus, you should recognize God-given authority wherever you find it and obey. Uh, submit to governing authorities. That's Paul's call. Now, I know we don't like the word submission. <laughs> We're really uncomfortable with that word. Uh, but submission is actually part of what it means to be human. I mean, otherwise, uh, you know, an, an orchestra submits to the conductor. Otherwise, the very idea of an orchestra falls apart. Everybody's just doing their own thing. 
So citizens must submit to their governors, otherwise the very idea of government and citizenship fall apart. So the gospel should make the church more submissive to governing authorities, not less. If you are a follower of Jesus, that means obeying this command, submit to governing authorities. The gospel is not a threat to law and order, Luke is trying to say. You shouldn't punish Paul just because he's a Christian. He hasn't committed any crime. The gospel is, is not a threat to law and order, but actually prom promotes civil harmony. Now, again, here's the question that, that we think of as 21st century Americans. Okay, uh, what about unjust authorities, right? What about, what about evil authorities? Does, does that mean the gospel simply allows evil systems to go on being evil systems? You know, we hear the word submission and, and we immediately start to think of excuses why we should disobey. So, you know, there, there's no systemic critique of a corrupt government. Are Christians just to blindly follow whatever earthly order happens to be in charge? Well, there are a number of answers to that question, I guess. Uh, the first and the shortest is this. Submission has its limits. Uh, Peter said earlier in Acts, we must obey God rather than men. Right? It's pretty simple. We must obey God rather than men. Uh, there is a line, and that is the line. <laughs> Sometimes Christian ask, Christians ask about civil disobedience, whether it's ever permissible, and the answer is yes. We must obey God rather than men. And anytime anyone asks us to do anything, right, man or woman, commands us to do things contrary to God, we know who to follow. We obey God rather than men. And I think, yeah, we're bound to say that that includes, you know, if we're called upon to enable some uh, oppressive evil system, even if our part in it is benign, right, we must obey God rather than men. But up to that point, we're called to live in obedience, right, in submission to governing authorities. Which really brings us to our second point. How, how does the church relate to society? On the one hand, the church is to be obedient. We're to obey the authorities that God has placed over us. The second is the church is to be influential. As we talk about this, I want you to think about what impact your faith has on those around you. What are the various ways it might have an impact as you relate to people that you see every day? But let's go back to Demetrius. Uh, look at verses 23 to 27. About that time, there was no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods." And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Why was Artemis upset? Or why was Demetrius upset? He was upset because of something Paul did. Was he upset because Paul had, had started a protest rally against the idol makers and got thousands of names on a petition and began to boycott Demetrius's workplace. No, right? Uh, that's not what happened. 
Paul's impact, and he did have an impact on the Ephesian economy, was real, but it was indirect. Uh, Paul preached, saying, uh, verse 26, that gods made with hands are not gods. Paul preached the gospel, right? Paul preached Jesus. The Holy Spirit granted repentance and faith, and as 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says, uh, Paul's hearers turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And of course, turning to, to uh, God from idols had an economic impact in Ephesus. I, I want you to think about something. In the book of Acts, why, uh, why do people get upset with the gospel? Right? When, when do people get so upset that they begin to persecute Paul or others in the church? There are actually only two reasons. Two main reasons. Uh, no persecution in Acts begins simply for religious reasons. There, there may well be religious reasons cited and involved by both Jews and Greeks, but when the motives are given, uh, there's normally something behind those religious reasons. What do you think that would be? Why would people be so upset with the spread of the gospel? There are two reasons. One is jealousy, and the other is money. When people began to turn to Jesus, the Jewish religious leaders got jealous. We saw that in the Gospels. We see it in the book of Acts. But that's not what happened to the Gentiles. Uh, there are only two examples, actually, of Gentile-motivated persecution in the book of Acts. And both times, it is because the Gospel had a direct economic impact. That is, people were losing money. And they didn't like that. You may remember back in Acts chapter 16, uh, Paul cast a demon out of a slave girl who made money for, for her owners by telling fortunes. And you remember what happened? Uh, Acts 16 verse 19 says, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. It, that's funny, isn't it? Right? Notice their stated reasons. These Christians are acting against Rome. They should be arrested. But what was their real motive? They were mad that they lost money. What's going on here in Acts 19? It's the same thing. Demetrius makes miniature silver idols. Paul's preaching and the subsequent conversion of the Ephesian citizens had depleted his business. People weren't coming to him and buying idols like they used to, which is amazing. And so Demetrius goes on the attack. And notice, uh, to his fellow tradesmen, he gives two reasons in verse 27. Verse 27, he says, And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. So he gives two reasons uh, to his fellow tradesmen, those who also might lose money in this deal. But when they begin to involve the crowds, notice the financial reason disappears. They stir up the crowds, not by saying, hey, we're going to lose money on this deal. But they focus on the religious reason. They stir up the crowds saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, why is all this important? The spread of Christianity and the subsequent conversion of people had an impact on the society around it. Not because uh, they had rallies and protests and marches, 
I'm not saying those things are necessarily wrong, uh, but th those are tools uh, within this world that can accomplish goals within this world at times, some of which are good, but they cannot grow the kingdom. Right? That's not the way Jesus' kingdom grows. Remember, Christ is a king. Uh, in fact, he is the king, but his kingdom is not of this world. And when Jesus says that, that, you know, my kingdom is not of this world, you remember that in the Gospel of John, he immediately applies it to method, which is interesting. John 18, verse 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Christ's kingdom does not grow through force, whether military force or political force or psychological manipulation or anything else. How does Christ's kingdom grow? What does Acts tell us up to this point? What have we seen chapter after chapter in the book of Acts? Just back up a few verses to verse 20. Verse 20 says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. As Paul preached the gospel, hearts were changed. Changed hearts led to changed lives, and changed lives had an impact on the whole community. Why? Well, because as Christians, we can no longer participate in the idolatries of our age. And that means as students, right, there's something more important than grades, but also something more important than partying on Friday night. As business people, there's something more important than the bottom line. As parents, there's something more important than perfect kids. As lawyers, there's actually something more important than the law. Because sometimes the legal system of our age doesn't bring about the justice of God. And so having Jesus as king directly confronts the commitments of our heart, whatever they might be. You, you cannot serve Jesus and money. You cannot serve Jesus and academics. You cannot serve Jesus and the United States of America. That doesn't mean you can't serve Jesus and use money. It doesn't mean you can't serve Jesus as an academic. It doesn't mean you can't serve Jesus and be a good citizen. But it means that there is something more important than anything else in this life. And that's serving King Jesus. And as we serve him, the impact on society should be inevitable. It at least was in the book of Acts. Paul clearly affected the, the sort of systems and structures of his day, but it wasn't through protests and political programs, but through preaching the gospel. Again, it's not useless to work for change on a structural level, level through politics or social movements or whatever, but that alone is impotent and insufficient, right? The tools of those who know only the powers of this age. Social transformation, real social transformation must begin in the heart like all change. And only the gospel can change our hearts. And the heart changes as the spirit applies God's word and that may mean that as your heart is changed, you go out and work for social political change. That's great. I, I'm, I, I'm not trying to discourage that. I just want you to get the order and the church's role in that. The word of God leads to a heart for God, which leads to an impact on the world around. It's the word that transforms the heart that moves us to act. And let me put it differently. Uh, Moses, you remember Moses uh, back in the book of Exodus Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God, Mount Sinai, right? This high point in the book of Exodus, come out of Egypt, go up on the mountain to meet with God. When he comes down, his face shines. Being in God's presence had caused his face to shine so brightly that the people couldn't bear to look at it. 
What does Jesus say about his church? He says, you are the light of the world. How can that be? I mean, I'm sinful. I'm broken. I'm not always obedient, right? I'm rebellious. I'm sometimes angry and depressed. How can I be the light of the world? How? Well, because 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, as the gospel is preached, through Christ we're reconciled to our Father. Through Christ we draw near to God. Through Christ we see the light of God's glory. And as a result, our faces shine. We, even in the midst of our brokenness, reflect the glory of Christ. That's why we gather each week, right? We, we gather uh, to behold the glory of the Father in the face of Jesus, so that when we scatter, we shine as lights in the world. That glow may be as we do something radical for Jesus, or it may be simply as we attempt to love our families well, which isn't always easy. It may be as we struggle through calculus, or as we do a boring job day after day, looking to Jesus for the reward, knowing that we are serving King Jesus in our work. Or it may be as we suffer and as we struggle to look to Jesus in the midst of that, trusting Jesus as our shepherd to, to walk us through the valley of the shadow of death. And so the, the church's method as the church is not political protest or social revolution. The church's method is, is word and sacrament blessed by the Spirit. As, a, as the church, our call is to God's word. It, it's a, it may have an indirect impact on the world around us. Paul did not, again, start a protest against the idol makers. He didn't do that, not because that would be wrong, but because that's not the role of the church as the church. Rather, the gospel, like a leaven, worked itself into the hearts of the people and therefore into their spending habits as well. The gospel leads to a transformed people who then impact the world around them. Now, of course, one of the scary application questions of this passage is as the gospel works itself into your heart, as you grow in your obedience to King Jesus, are there aspects of the culture that you need to give up? Right? Like where in our culture are the temples of Artemis? What are the Artemis temples that you frequent? What will it look like for you to be faithful to Jesus there? Let me spell all this out a little bit in the, in the third point. So the church is to be obedient. The church is to be influential. The church is to be the church. Uh, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean, the church is to be the church? Uh, the church is what it is because of its relationship to Christ. If we didn't have a relationship to Christ, there wouldn't be a church. And so, on the one hand, the church is Christ's kingdom, the people over whom he rules. The church is Christ's body, right? The people uh, to whom he gives life and strength as its head. And the church is Christ's temple, right? The people in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. 
So I want to I just take a moment to think about those three pictures of the church. And what does it mean then for the church to be the church? So first, the church is Christ's kingdom, the people over whom he rules. What does that mean? Well, it means we must obey Christ, first and foremost, right? If we want to have any kind of impact on the world around us, the first thing we must do as the church, being the church, is we must obey Christ. He's the king. We are his people. It's funny, of course, in Paul's day, Luke was defending the fact that Christians aren't criminals. Uh, that in and of itself might be countercultural in our day. Uh, think about it, right? Um, if we lived in genuine submission to the government, uh, genuine submission to governing authorities, out of our submission to King Jesus, that in and of itself would be a kind of, of counterintuitive uh, way of living, right? Our, our, our society, we, we don't like any authorities, right? We do our best to push back against them whenever possible. Um, but if citizens lived in humble submission to our governments, if, if children lived in humble submission to their parents, if wives lived in humble submission to their husbands, if employees lived in humble submission to their employers, how radical would that be? And yet so simple, and yet so hard. I, I got a speeding ticket recently. Uh, it was about two weeks, two months ago. I don't even remember what it was. Why did I get a speeding ticket? Because I didn't care. Right? I didn't care. I didn't care about submission to the governing authority, especially in this little thing, right? Who cares about that? That's our attitude. But that's our attitude all the time. We do what is convenient. And yet we're called to represent King Jesus as we live in obedience to him. And part of that is living in submission to those whom he has placed over us. Not constantly thinking we know better, even if we do. Where do you need to begin obeying Christ? You know where I need to begin obeying Christ, but where do you need to be begin obeying Christ? Is there some area of your life that has been hands off for Jesus up to this point? Right? Repent of that. And ask Christ to empower you by the Spirit to begin living in obedience to King Jesus. So the church is Christ's kingdom, the people over whom he rules. Therefore, we must obey Christ. If we want to have any influence on anybody around us, that's where it begins. Not with us and them, it begins with us in Christ. Second, the church is Christ's body, the people to whom he gives life and strength as its head. What does that mean? It means, it means actually we, we must follow him. We must imitate him. We follow our head. You know, sometimes people say that we're the hands and feet of Christ in the world, and that's true because we are his body, Paul says. Another, a, a different metaphor, right? He is the vine. We are the branches. He bears his fruit through us. He is the head, we are the body. He acts in this world through us. And as the branches, Christ's sap enlivens us so we bear fruit. As Christ's body, his blood is coursing through our veins as, it's were, as it were. Right? First Corinthians connects this body image with the spirit indwelling the church and empowering the church to serve. And so as the spirit empowered and enlivened body of Christ, we're gifted to serve as Christ's representatives in the world. How can you follow Christ? Well, imitate him by the power of his spirit in us. Be his body in the world, his hands, his feet. What does that mean? I mean, we, we so often think of impact as seeking a position of power so we can gain advantage. 
Right? If I really want to have impact, I need to, I need to make it in the world so that I have some control over people, some power, some worldly influence. But Jesus didn't come to gain power, but to serve. He, he didn't come to gain advantage, but to die, to give of himself for our good. Jesus didn't come to promote himself in the hopes that he would get enough Twitter followers, right, that people would listen to him. He came to love, which, of course, counterintuitively, ended up promoting him to the right hand of the Father. See, what if we sought to influence by love for God and neighbor? What if rather than trying to gain, we sought to give? What if rather than trying to gain power, we sought to serve others in Jesus' name? Jesus came obedient to civil authorities until, until death, even those who failed to administer justice. Serving us through the cross, gifting us with forgiveness and the gift of the Spirit and the hope of the resurrection, promising that his kingdom will cover the earth at his return. That means we've been freed and empowered to serve as he served, knowing that like Christ, we, we will receive our reward from the Father. We can serve like Christ, knowing, knowing God will use that to bring about his purposes and reward us on the last day. How we serve, of course, is going to look different for each one of us because we're all gifted in different ways, right? Paul's metaphor in 1 Corinthians 12 about the body is the fact that some of us are eyes and some of us are hands and others of us are feet. And so who are you? Right? Who has God made and remade you to be? How has God gifted you to serve in the church and in the world as the hands and feet of Christ? As we do that, of course, we display Christ to the world. And yet more than that, the world encounters Christ through Christ in us. Uh, that brings us to the, the final way that the church is to be the, to be the church, right? The church is the church when as Christ's people we obey Christ our King. The church is the church when as Christ's body we imitate Christ our head and follow Him, use His gifts given by His Spirit to serve and be served, serve as He served. Third, the church is Christ's temple, the dwelling place of the Spirit. And, and what does that mean? It means that we bring Christ into the world. Right? Where the church is, there Christ is. And that's what he says, right? Where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am in their midst. And of course, we don't mean the building when we talk about the church. We mean uh, in and among the people of God, especially the gathered people. That's where Jesus is. Not just because we look like Christ or serve like Christ. Not just because we imitate Christ. Because sometimes we don't. Right? Often we fail. No, people meet Christ in the church because Christ is in the church. The church is his temple, his dwelling place. Where the church is, there Christ is. I don't know if we get this, how radical that is. When we go into the world, especially when we go together, we, we bring Christ to a world that needs him as much as we do. And so we go humbly as broken people, seeking to help broken people see Jesus that together we may live in light of his grace. You know, too often people feel a kind of weight as if uh, I need to get all my stuff together if Jesus is to be glorified. If I'm going to have an impact on anybody, I need to really, I need to shape up. But we go not because we're so great, but because Christ is in us. He is our confidence, right? Never ever go out into the world thinking you've arrived enough that you shine. Right? No matter how much you have grown in the Christian life, you're still little more than a firefly at high noon in yourself. 
No, go because you have gazed on the one whose face shines brighter than the sun, according to Revelation. Because you know by faith that Jesus is at work through his people for his glory to make himself known. So we go resting in him. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we confess that uh, we are broken and sinful and dull. We are not bright and shining. So we need you, Jesus. We need to meet with you. We need to see you. We need to, we need to know your glory so that your glory would be reflected through us to the world. Your glory, not ours. We pray that you would so work by your spirit to, to show us Jesus, that Jesus would be made known. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.